See, Jesus has a way of really evening the playing field. He doesn't minimize particular sins. He just essentially tells you, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you would think, without knowing how the story ends, that Jesus would have come down from the Sermon on the Mount and he would have wielded that sermon like something to beat over people's heads. And yet he does something totally amazing. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. Our current series, Human Sexuality in the Bible, explores what Scripture has to say on the topic of sex and our bodies. And here we find grace and truth as we consider marriage, singleness, sexual orientation, and more. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. And now, here's this week's message. Hey, good morning. Uh, thanks for joining us. I'm really glad you're here. If you have your Bible, I would love to encourage you to go to the book of Romans, Romans chapter one. Uh, we are continuing in the theme that we were reviewing last week where we are looking at one question and one question only, which is this, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? And uh, if, if you're here for the very first time this morning or this is your first time watching online, we're, we're glad that you are here, but my encouragement to you as I've encouraged the whole congregation is to do your best to go back and watch all the other messages uh, all the way up to this point. Otherwise, you're going to get a really truncated view of what we're trying to cover here. Um, and so I just leave that to you and I, I think you'll be served and blessed by that. Um, so if we're going to look at this topic once again, I just want to set the stage very briefly to remind us of some of the things that we reviewed last week. We left with some challenges, did we not, for our friends and family members and coworkers, for, for those of us who are on the affirming side and for those of us who hold to the traditional or the historic interpretation on this topic. And regardless of the position that you hold, there are some challenges, some questions that we have to wade through. Because I think from my vantage point, either we're having a, a, a really hard time interpreting what scripture ultimately says, or, and we have been false to the truth with respect to how we have lived this out. And so either way, we have some work to do as a congregation and as the capital C church. But if I were to give a little bit more teeth to the disagreement uh, between the two sides, it's not just what does the Bible say about homosexuality, but I would put the question this way. Here's the question that we should look at once the screen is up. Uh, is biological or sexual difference part of God's prescriptive design for marriage? Is it part of his prescriptive design? There we go. And so that's the question that um, I think all of us should really spend some time thinking about and looking at, and that's why we looked at Genesis chapter 2 last week where we laid the foundation. Genesis chapter 2 describes God's design for marriage and requires both partners, A, to be human, remember the konegdo, K meaning as or like, uh, from different families, and to display biological or sexual difference. That's the neged of the konegdo. And then we reviewed Leviticus chapters 18 and 20, and here's what we discerned. The focus in Leviticus 18 and 20 is biological sex. Two people of the same sex are not to be involved sexually the way two people of the opposite sex are permitted to be. 
However, we, we also said that we had to withhold judgment because the clearest evidence of a Old Testament law being a timeless moral law is if it's repeated in the New Testament. So we said, we just got to hang on. We have to also look at what Scripture says in the New Testament to discern if, if we understand Scripture most clearly. So here's the question. Are the teachings from the New Testament clear? Or are there ways in which, in which we have misinterpreted them or read them the wrong way? And the answer to that question is important because... The way that we respond to this topic should reflect the character, the love, the instruction, and the heart of God. And so this is really, really important. We want to make sure that we do this really well. So as we continue to explore this topic on God's design for marriage and sex and our bodies, I want to once again remind you to please, please, please keep your mirror Bibles open. Be looking at this through the lens, not so much. Like we, like we looked at all the way back in week one, we're not going to focus so much on the widow. Didn't we say that? We're not going to focus so much on the divorced person. We're not going to focus so much on the same-sex attracted teenager or the transgender woman or the man addicted to pornography or on the single person. As much as we are going to think about this, how am I called to live in relation to that person who is made in the image and the likeness of God? And equally important, how am I called to walk in discipleship with Jesus as the community of faith. See, I think one of the challenges that we have as a capital C church in the West is that we live in a hyper-individualized culture. And so it's very easy for us to think about our vertical relationship with God. You know, I believe in Jesus. And yet, every single time you step over that line to follow Jesus, you are instantly part of the household of God. Which means we not only get along with dad, we got to get along with his kids. And we have to function as a faith family. So it does no good for us to say, you know what, I know what my position is on this particular topic. Unless we also consider the practical embodiments of what it means to hold that position. And to love people who are made in God's image and likeness. And my hope is by the end of today, and with respect to every topic that we're going to cover for the next coming weeks, that we keep our mirror Bibles open. And that's going to serve us really well. So there's three instances in which homosexuality is addressed in the New Testament. And the first one that we're going to look at is Romans chapter 1. So the context of this whole passage is very similar to what we've been learning in 1 Corinthians. Romans 1 verse 18 all the way through Romans 3.26 is all the introduction in which the author Paul is laying out one idea for us, and it is this. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it is only through the blood of the Lamb, it is only through Jesus that we can be saved. That in and of ourselves, we can't do anything at all. No one here is righteous. No one here is worthy to stand before God, that every single person, when they step over that line to follow Jesus, we say we are saved by grace, through faith, in Christ, period. 
that it's not a little bit of works, a little bit of grace. It's all grace. It's all Jesus. And Paul's kind of just evening the playing field that regardless of the sexual sins or the topics that we're going to address, that you need to know that every single person has sinned and Jesus is the only way in. And I think that really helps when we have any kind of conversation about sin, that we don't have red letter sins and green letter sins, but we see everything through the lens of, I'm a sinner, Jesus is Savior, and he's the only way. He's the only way. And that's how we interpret anything that we look at. And so within that context, he lays out the impact of our sin and rebellion toward God, giving us a laundry list of behaviors that break the heart of God and ultimately lead us away from him. So this is Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 24, and we're going to read through verse 27. Look at this with me. Again, everything's on the screen, but I love when you have your Bibles open. I want you to make these connections. So if you got a Bible, look at your Bible with me. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desire of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised, amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. So in order for us to get the best understanding of what Paul is addressing here, there's two questions that we have to review together. The first is, what is the, the desire or the motive that is driving the behavior that's being identified in this chapter? And the second, what is the behavior or action that this chapter ultimately is condemning? And so let's, let's look at the first question first, and then we'll get to this one. Um, if you have your Bibles open, look with me at verse 24. Verse 24 shows the theme where it talks about sexual impurity. That's the theme. But then from there, Paul does something really interesting. He, he elevates the conversation where we realize we're no longer just talking about sexual sin. And again, that, that's why I want you to know the overarching theme from Romans 1 to Romans 3, that it's not just about um, God's laundry list of no's. Right? You can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do that. It's not like he's some divine dictator up in the sky saying, I'm okay with this, I'm not okay with that. You shouldn't do this, but you should do that. He's trying to captivate your attention so that you understand the reason why he's saying no. And I think that's helpful because most people, they might say, okay, Bible says this, the Bible says that, but why does it say that? I struggle with that. Why does the Bible say what it says? What, what's kind of the, the rationale or the reasonableness for that? And so then he talks about worship. What? Worship? I, I thought we were talking about sexual impurity. And so here's how Paul elevates the conversation. He says that this is an instance of idolatry. It is an instance of worship. And this is, once again, even playing field, there are many times in all of our lives in which we say, God, I see your plan and I raise you mine. I raise you mine. 
my way is better than your way. I have a better plan. I see your advice, and I will take my absolutes. And that's regarding anything. And Paul says any instance in which we don't want to do what God is telling us to do is ultimately a sign of idolatry and the worship of ourselves and the things around us. And then verse 23, it says that God gave them over to shameful lusts. And then he gives examples in verse 27, all of which are about biological sex. And this is the point in which uh, those who hold to the traditional interpretation and the affirming interpretation disagree with one another. The argument from the affirming position, and I just have to let you know, I find this compelling. I think this is a compelling argument. Is that the example here is of lustful passions. So it's, it's not so much a covenantal, lifelong, exclusive partnership of two people of the same sex... Because how could it be, right? Like everything that we see here is just two people, two men or two women who are engaging in like a one-night stand. And perhaps they don't even have same-sex attraction. Perhaps they're just sexually curious. This is an example of out-of-control sexual passion. And I think that's a fair argument. Like that's, that's what you see in all of these verses. It's all about passion and lust. It's not the sort of language that you would use to describe a covenantal relationship, whether that be a heterosexual or a homosexual relationship. Like, like who would explain their marriage in this way? And so I, I think that's a very fair argument. So the affirming argument goes a little bit like this. Paul isn't critiquing same-sex love, but he's, he's talking about abusive power dynamics in sex, out-of-control sexual exploration, and or the commodification of people in sexual acts like temple prostitution. And as many of you already know, if you've been joining us in our First Corinthians series, Rome and Corinth were filled with temple prostitution. They were filled with it. And so that's what's being condemned here. And, and again, that resonates with me because I, I don't know of any gay person who would affirm how it's described in Romans chapter 1. And that leads to our second question. What behavior or action is this chapter condemning? So here's what I want to propose to you, and then we'll look at this together. The way Paul frames his argument here is that even though individual people participating in these things might not share all of the characteristics of what we see in Romans chapter 1, like being filled with passion, being filled with lust, here's the point. Paul's not merely arguing against the motive that drove the behavior, like lustful passions, but the behavior itself. Why? Why? On the basis of it not being part of God's created design. Now, I want to show you how he does this. If you got your Bibles open, look at Romans, Romans chapter 1, verse 20. This is just four verses before our text. And Paul says that God has revealed himself in what? What has he revealed himself in? Help me out. In creation. That's right. So he's, he's brought us back all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. We've been transported to the creation narrative. And then look down at verse 25. He references God as the creator of creation. Which again, we're now in Genesis chapter 1. And then, just like Genesis 1 does, he uses gender-specific terms, talking about male and female. Both of them are similarly aligned. And then here's the most compelling piece. Paul mirrors 
Genesis chapter one, verse 26, to make his point more clear. So I have this up on the screen for you. I'm gonna have both of them here so you can see just how Paul does this. So let me read to you Genesis 1:26, which comes from the Septuagint. So this is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Paul says, let us make mankind, with, which is the Greek word anthropos, in our image, ikonos, in our likeness, homoousios, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds, petanon, over the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals, and over the reptiles, herpeton, that move along the ground. In the image, ikonos, of God, he created mankind, anthropos, male and female, he created them. So now here's what I want you to see. We're now going to read Romans chapter 1, verse 23. Paul says, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for what? For images, ikonos. In the likeness, homoousios, of mortal humankind, anthropos. And of birds, petanon, and animals, and, repet and reptiles, herpeton. Do you see what Paul's doing? Do you see the genius of his argument here? You have to remember that uh, Jewish Christians from the first century and back, most of them could not read. It was an oral tradition. So they're always listening to the word of God. And so especially as uh, um, anyone who's reading Romans 1.23, they would start saying this and people would go, where have I heard this before? I've, I've read this before. Oh my goodness, that's Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. Paul is masterfully weaving in the creation narrative, the story of the Kenegdo, in order to make his point more clear. And then we have to ask that question, what is the point? What's the point? I put it this way. Next slide, please. The reason why any sexual relationship outside of a lifelong exclusive marriage between a man and a woman is out of bounds is because it doesn't adhere to God's prescribed created design and he uses Genesis chapter one to make his point more clear. He uses Genesis one so that you can be reminded of the clearest instance in all of scripture where he talks about the divine design between a man and a woman, the connecto of God, and then everything that we have already reviewed together with the point of Genesis chapter two. And then we even see after this, uh, Romans 1.25, he uses the language of a lie. Uh, verse 27, the language of shame. Verse 32, the sentence of death. And so these are all allusions of, of Genesis chapter three. And so he's, he's walking us through Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3 as a story of the undoing of the creation narrative. That's what Paul is drawing to mind here. So look again at the affirming argument from Paul. So we said Paul's critiquing abuse of power dynamics in sex, out of control sexual exploration, the commodification of people in sexual acts like temple prostitution. And I think to all of that, Paul would say, yes, 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 a resounding yes. But is that the only thing that Paul is condemning? Is it the only thing? And so here, here's my question um, uh, for those of you who hold to the affirming argument, this is the question I would want to propose to you. If the affirming position is true that Paul isn't talking about same-sex love like a, a monogamous, covenantal, consensual love relationship and it was strictly homosexual passion and lust, 
then why draw in Genesis chapter 126, which is the most vivid example in all of scripture of God's original design between a man and a woman? Why go there? Why go there? Why use that reference? That, that's a question for me. There are so many different ways that Paul could have made his point clear that he was only talking about out-of-control lust and sexual, uh, abusive sexual relationships. Why use Genesis 126? One of the things that's really impacted me in all of my reading and study is that practically every historian and classicist um, who is not a Christian holds to the, in, the traditional interpretation for Paul. That's not to say that they personally agree with him, but just picture this in your mind for a moment. Let's say that we removed all Christian historians, all Christian scholars, all Christian classicists from the conversation. Because after all, Christians have a bit of a dog in the race, right? So all the affirming and non-affirming Christians, you just throw them to the side. And now all we're looking at is scholars who are Jewish, who are atheists, who are agnostic, who are Muslims, and they're familiar with the writings of Paul. If you only look at non-Christians, I couldn't find a single reputable scholar who argued this claim, and the claim is this, that Paul condemns all forms of same-sex sexual relationships regardless of whether they were committed monogamous relationships or not. And I think that's compelling. And I can understand the reasons why and we're going to talk about this a little bit later, why affirming Christians would feel compelled to say, Paul isn't talking about that, he's talking about something different. Let me give you one such example of this. This comes from Lewis Crompton. Uh, he's a scholar, he was a, a Canadian, and he introduced one of Canada's first ever gay study classes in a Canadian university all the way back in 1970. He was widely considered to be a pioneer in queer studies. He was an ally of the early LGBTQ movement. He himself was gay. And so a very reputable scholar. He just disagreed with Paul because he wasn't a Christian. And he wrote this. According to one interpretation, Paul's words were not directed at bona fide homosexuals in committed relationships. But such a reading, however well-intentioned, seems strained and unhistorical. Nowhere does Paul or any other Jewish writer of this period imply the least acceptance of same-sex relations under any circumstance. The idea that homosexuals might be redeemed by mutual devotion would have been wholly foreign to Paul or any other Jew or early Christian. And so as strange as it might sound, it is only Christian scholars who say, Paul isn't critiquing same-sex love, but abuse of power dynamics and sex, out-of-control sexual exploration and or the commodification of people and sexual acts. Only Christians. And I find that significant. And no matter how well-intentioned, I would argue that what Paul is arguing or addressing here is not rape. He's not talking about pederasty or exploitative sex. Hence, also, this is the only time in Scripture where he talks about women having sex with women because there were many instances of abuse of power dynamics among men, but there were none among women, and Paul still includes that. It's not just about hookups or one-night stands. Here's the point of Romans 1. The focus of Romans 1 is a physical, biological sexual act between two consenting parties of the same sex, 
appealing to the creation mandate in Genesis chapter one to make his point clear. And so remember the point that we ended with last week. The clearest evidence of an Old Testament law being a timeless moral law is if it's repeated in the New Testament. Paul knows this principle And that is why he doesn't just say, don't do this or don't do that. That's the reason why he appeals to Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, drawing in the prescriptive teachings of the Old Testament and reapplying them to the new covenant community, Christians in the first century and even today. So I'd like for us now to address the last two passages together because the disagreement between the affirming and not affirming side is the same in both. And ultimately, it comes down to the translation of two Greek words, the words malakoi and the word arsenikoitai. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read the texts, and then we're going to go from there. So if you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Here's what he says. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And now I want you to turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9. says this, we also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me, and that is Paul. So just like Romans chapter one, Paul gives a laundry list of behaviors that grieve the heart of God. And and I just wanna ask the same question that I asked of you last week when we looked at the list from Leviticus 18 and 20. If we're thinking about pulling out one of these commands and saying that they no longer apply to us today, is there a second or even a third that you would be willing to pull out with it? So let's look at this list for a second again. What Paul identifies in these chapters is sexual immorality, idolatry, adultery, drunkenness, greed, theft, slander, swindlers, men who have sex with men, murderers, those who kill their fathers or mothers, lawbreakers, slave traders, liars, perjurers, etc. So if, you, if you're taking out one, what's the second one that's coming with it? Or the third? Now, if you're anything like me, this list might make you a little bit nervous, a little bit concerned, because you might be thinking to yourself, you know, Justin, it, murder is far more gratuitous than telling a white lie. Right? And killing your father or your mother has a much bigger immediate impact than, say, petty theft or even greed. So, how is it possible that Paul, through the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is making a list like this and putting them all together? 
That just, like, it doesn't sit well with me. That doesn't make sense to me. And, and I resonate with that. But, but here's the point that, that I think Paul is seeking to make. He's not trying to distinguish between what you might call red letter sins and green letter sins and saying these ones are more significant, these are more gratuitous, these ones are not, these ones are okay. And, and we also recognize that there are certain laws that have an immediate impact. Thou shalt not murder. You see the implications of that immediately. But telling a white lie, you might say, well, that didn't really hurt anybody. That's not so bad. But that's not the point. The point that Paul is making is that any of these things, ultimately, if you continue to do them, lead you away from the heart of God. It grieves the heart of God. And it diminishes how he has created the universe in order for it to function best. So it not only grieves his heart, but it also detracts from human flourishing. That's the point that he wants you to see. And again, I've shared this with you before. If we only have this idea that God is some sort of uh, divine dictator high in the sky telling us what we can and can't do, we miss the point. We miss the point. God wants to see people of shalom, people who are growing and flourishing together as the people of God. That's the point of his list. And so I want to camp here for a second and show you something that you can only see in the original Greek translation. When your Bible says men who have sex with men, it is actually the translation of two Greek words. And we looked at them already, the word malakoi and the word arsenikoitai. So malakoi literally means soft as in a soft material. And in the first century, and especially here, it means being the passive partner in a male-to-male sex act. That, that's what malakoi means. And our affirming friends would say that the use of this word shows that this is not a mutual relationship. There's a, a balance of power here that's out of whack. There are some who are weak and vulnerable. That's the malakoi. And there are some who are strong. That's the arsenikoitai. That's the imbalance. Hang on to that. We're, we're going to return to it. And the second is the word arsenikoitai. It's really interesting because this is a made-up compound word, just like we saw last week with the konegdo, the k and the neged put together. This is the word arsen, which means man, and koitai, or coitus, which means bed. We still use the English word coitus today. It comes from this word. It means sex or intercourse. So put together, it is um, men who have sex with men. Men who have sex with men. So here's why that's important, because the translation of the word arsenikoitai has done tremendous psychological harm over the years. There's, there's one such example of a gentleman by the name of Bradley Fowler, and he sued Zondervan Publishing House for $60 million back in 2008. I remember this. I was a third year at Dort at the time. And basically, here's what he said. He, he sued them because of their translation of the word arsenikoitai, which was translated as homosexual offenders. What does that mean? Homosexual offenders. And Fowler said that this translation has caused him years of anxiety, loss of sleep, appetite, self-esteem, and the ability to reestablish family bonds. Fowler didn't win the case but it serves as an indication, as a signpost, that words have consequences. 
Words have consequences. I think, I think this is a terrible translation, frankly. So let me show you how these words, Malakoi and Arsenikoitai, have been translated over the years. Just the varying degrees with which these words have been used. Um, boy molesters is one translation. Men who practice homosexuality, homosexuals, abusers of themselves with mankind. What does that even mean? They that defile themselves with mankind, homosexuals, effeminate homosexuals, boy prostitutes and practicing homosexuals, men who have sex with men, sodomites, male prostitutes, sodomites again. And so you can see here that this is very, very confusing. There's not even consensus amongst scholars and interpreters. So let, let me just share it this way. Let me ask you a question. What is homosexuality? Is it an orientation? Is it a practice? Is it attraction? Is it a behavior? Can you have same-sex attraction and not be homosexual in your practice? Can you be heterosexual and have gay sex? So like, I just want you to see that this is a word that is loaded, packed with cultural meaning, and it can be deeply misunderstood. And because of all those translations, they have caused inappropriate translations and tremendous harm to people who have same-sex attraction. It has been a disservice. Personally, I think the best translation is the NIV 2011, which uh, says men who have sex with men. It is the most literal translation, and it distinguishes between same-sex attraction and engaging in same-sex intercourse. That's the distinction that the NIV 11 makes. So just like I did with Romans 1, I want to present to you what I think is the most compelling argument from the affirming position. And here's, here's the reason why I'm doing this. I recognize that for, for those of you who are Christians in the room, you need to be convinced in your own mind you can't just be like, well, my, my pastor said once. Oh, did you actually know? Or I, I watched a video on TikTok and, and someone, some scholar said this. And they, you know, they, they own the libs. You know, they, they owned the conservatives with this remark, right? Like, we got to go deeper than that. And so that is why I want, I want to facilitate your learning. If you have questions, now the impetus is on you with the help of the Holy Spirit to critically ask those questions, to come to terms with the word of God and to yield to your own opinion and to say, God, please give me clarity on this. Please help me understand more fully what your will is for me and for the community of God. Because as I've shared with you, the implications of this are significant. We're not talking about issues. We're talking about people who are made in God's likeness. And so I, I want to facilitate that for you. So here's to me the strongest argument from the affirming position. It goes like this. The language is unclear. And we cannot know for sure what it means. Paul is likely critiquing abuse of power dynamics in sex and prostitution, hence the use of the word malakoi, which was often used to describe callboys in the first century in uh, temple prostitution, and isn't critiquing monogamous, consensual, same-sex love. That's really compelling. And to add significance to this argument, here's what you should know. The word arsnikoitai is rarely used I want to show you just how rarely it is used. In the entire New Testament, it is used 
a grand total of two times in the two passages that we're looking at today, 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy 1. And so just like with last week with the word connecto, you can't get what is called the semantic range. You can't look at all these kind of different elements within scripture to understand more fully what it's trying to communicate to us. Two is very infrequently. And then if you look at all surviving Greek literature from the first, second, and third centuries, that's a lot, right? Like you got Plato's Symposium, you got writings from kings and from judges, you have so much literature from the first, second, and third century. Guess how many times the word arshnikoitai is used in all surviving literature? Zero times. That is craziness. So very clearly, Paul is using a word that has never been used before and was never used again until 300 years later, and it was in reference to Paul, right? So this is a totally brand new made up word, and so it's hard for us to get a full understanding of what Paul is seeking to convey. However, what if I told you that the reason why this word has never been used before is because Paul is intentionally creating a new word to draw his readers back to the only time in which these two words, arson and coitus, are used in close proximity together, not just any two times in the Old Testament, but the only passages that we have reviewed together, Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. So let, let me show you these. Just once again, we're going to do what we did with Romans. I want to show you the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and then I want to show you the English uh, translation passages. So here's Leviticus 18, 22. Kai meta arsenos, arsenos is the word for man. U koimethes koiten, that's sexual relations, gonaiken. But then once you get to uh, Leviticus chapter 20, it is even more compelling. So if you're willing to do this, I'm not going to make you. Consider closing your eyes. I just want you to hear this. Not to see it, but to hear it. Because remember, this is a, an oral tradition. They're always listening to the word of God. And they especially focused on the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. They read this all the time. And so as Jewish Christians who know their Bibles, hear this. Kai has, on koimethe, meta arsenas koiten. Arsenos koiten, arsenos koiten, arsenos koiten, arsenos koiten. And then Paul comes to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and he says, arsenokoitai. To me, it's very clear that Paul, as a, a Jewish trained rabbi who studied under Gamaliel, who was a very famous rabbi, I've shared with you before, Paul's a brain on a stick, right? He knew the Old Testament like the back of his hand. It would be very easy for him to say, all right, I, I want to find the, the clearest instance of the Old Testament in which this has been talked about before, I'm going to go straight to Leviticus chapter 20, take these two words, make a brand new compound word with no cultural history, no cultural meaning, aside from Leviticus chapter 20 verse 13, to make my point abundantly clear, as clear as possible. So here's an example. This is I apologize in advance, it's kind of lame, but it's the best I can think of. Maybe you can think of a better example for me in the future. When I say chips, what comes to mind? Bag of chips, right? When I say, ahoy, what comes to mind? Probably some pirate, ahoy matey. When I say, chips ahoy, what are you thinking about? Not just cookies, 
You're thinking about chips, ahoy, cookies. Like instantly you're transported to a new place. Or if I say something like what happens and mm, stays and mm, where have I transported you? You're in Vegas. I don't even have to say the word, right? And so Paul, he has such skill that he takes these two words, he puts them together. It's in an oral tradition where they're constantly hearing arsenos koitin, arsenos koitin, arsenos koitin, and boom, brand new word, arson akoitai. And so remember the principle I started with. The clearest evidence of an Old Testament law being a timeless moral law is if it's repeated in the New Testament. And what I see is in Romans chapter 1, Paul goes back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 to make his point clear. And in 1 Corinthians 9 and in 1 Timothy 1, he draws readers back to Leviticus 18 and 20 so that they could understand more fully what he was saying and what he wasn't. Now I have to give the caveat. I can't say with 100% certainty that Paul had this in mind, that he was intentionally drawing from Leviticus chapter 20. I, I can't tell you that. I'm convinced of it. I think it makes a lot of sense given the context, but I can't say that with 100% certainty. So let's suppose I'm wrong on this. Let's suppose Paul wasn't thinking about Leviticus 18 and 20. And even if I am wrong on the use of arsenokoitai, there's a second element that I really, really struggle with here. If Paul wanted to express that he was only talking about prostitution, he was only talking about abuse of power dynamics and sex, he was only talking about pederasty, which is where men have sex with boys. He had literally a dozen different Greek words that were used all of the time that he could have used. And he overlooked all of them to make a brand new, made-up compound word never used before and never to be used again. Why? So let me give you some examples of Greek words that were at Paul's disposal that he could have used. So do you know where we get the word pederasty from? We get it from Koine Greek, pederastus which means lover of boys. He could have thrown in that word. We would have known with crystal clarity what he meant. Do you know where we get the word pedophilia from? We get it from Koine Greek. We get it from the first century. Paid off theros, corrupter of boys, or seducer of boys. Or the uh, compound of an English word eros, right, erotic love, and then estes, which is children. So erotic love with children, an older man with a boy lover, or a young boy with an older man lover. All I'm saying is there were so many words that Paul could have used to make that point and he overlooked all of them and instead he chose one word that only finds its expression in two other places, Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. And to me that's really, really compelling. And so listen friends, the consistent teaching of the Bible I think is really clear. But it's actually a lot worse than you think. Because here's what we learn. The Bible condemns every form of sexual activity outside of marriage between a husband and a wife. And so it does no good for the 98, 99% of the people in this room who do not have same-sex attraction. They go home and they go, whoo, I'm glad I don't have same-sex attraction. 
if you're sleeping with your girlfriend or if you're addicted to pornography or if you've been unfaithful to your spouse or if you've committed sexual impurity of any kind. And so once again, I, I have to share with you, if you got your binoculars on, you're missing the point. We're missing the point. Because this text applies to us all. It applies to every single person in this room. And so I, I want to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at what I think is the most important question on all of this, and, and it is this, how to love the gay Christian and community like Jesus. That's a question. How do we do that well? And so as we end this morning, I, I want to look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. This comes from Matthew chapter 5, and I want you to see the absolute genius of what Jesus does here because it really is about discipleship. And it's talk, talking about matters of sexuality, but they're now all put in the right perspective in recognizing what the gospel does to us all. In the Sermon on the Mount, which is in Matthew 5, Jesus, <laughs> do you remember the holiness code that we read last week when we entered into the sexual gutter of Leviticus 18 and 20 and I read all of Leviticus 18 to you? And you perhaps were even reminded of uh, sexual things that you perhaps haven't even thought of, but the author did, lays them all out. And I shared with you that the word holy or holiness is used 84 times in the book of Leviticus. It's all about holiness. And so Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, he takes the holiness code and he elevates it. He doesn't lower it and say, hey, it's okay. I'm going to the cross in a few days. Don't worry about it. He elevates it. Let me show you how he does this. Matthew 5 verse 27 says this. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's in Exodus and Leviticus. But I tell you that if anyone who uh, looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your, eye, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And so Leviticus and Exodus say adultery is sin. There's the bar. And Jesus says... If you have looked upon the, another person with lustful intent, you've already done the deed. What? What? He elevates the Levitical code. And he says, you know, if, if your eye's causing you to sin, you better gouge that thing out because it's better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than it is for your whole body to be thrown into the flames. Same goes for your hand. He elevates the Levitical code. And with all of that, we should now be asking one central question. By such a law, who can stand? Can you? Can anyone in this room stand according to this law? See, Jesus has a way of really evening the playing field. He doesn't minimize particular sins. He doesn't elevate others more than, than uh, other particular sins. 
He just essentially tells you, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's why I've come. And you would think, without knowing how the story ends, that Jesus would have come down from the Sermon on the Mount, and he would have wielded that sermon like something to beat over people's heads. And yet he does something totally amazing. From there, he has an encounter with three different people, all of which are detested by the Sanhedrin, by Pharisees, by teachers of the law. First, he meets with a Roman centurion. And perhaps uh, you've heard this story before. This is where he has um, someone who is sick. And he asks for Jesus to heal him. And Jesus says, take me. And he says, you don't even have to go. Like, I'm a person of authority. I tell someone to go and they go. And I just believe that if, if you say, say it, then they'll be healed. And Jesus says, I have never seen such great faith. And he affirms the Roman centurion. And then from there, the second story is a woman who's caught up in sexual sin. Isn't that interesting? Another story of a woman caught in sexual sin. And she bathes Jesus' feet with perfume and her tears and her hair. And the third story is where Jesus meets with a little man by the name of Zacchaeus who was a tax collector and once again hated and despised by the religious community. And Jesus says, hey Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. And notice, uh, Preston Sprinkle makes this point in his uh, book, People to be Loved. He says, notice, he doesn't first say, first you need to know my view on taxation before I can come to your house. He just says, I'm coming. I'm coming. Do you see the absolute genius of what Jesus does? He has greater conviction than any person in the entire world, and yet, quote-unquote, sinners love Jesus. They flock to Jesus Everyone wants to come toward Jesus, especially those who have a disordered past, who have a sexual rap sheet a mile long. They love Jesus. They keep coming to Jesus. How could that possibly be? Because I thought this was an issue. I thought every person in this room has to figure out, are you on the right or are you on the left? What position do you have? Where are you going to stand? And yet Jesus says, here's what I'm going to do. For all of you who are on the left of this issue, on the affirming side, he takes the Levitical code, he elevates it. He doesn't make it lower. But for those of us who are on the right position, right, the, the historical position, he says, here's what you need to recognize. Go to their homes. Interact with them. Love them. And so, listen, every person in this room, myself included, has something to learn from Jesus. He has such conviction and such compassion. And that's good news for everyone in this room because as I've asked you already, by such a law, who can stand? Who can stand? And the good news is we don't, we don't have to stand because Jesus stood for us. And that's what makes us compassionate people. And so Jesus says to you today, whether you are addicted to pornography or you've been divorced and remarried multiple times in ways that, that grieve the heart of God or if you have been unfaithful to your spouse or if you've engaged in any form of sexual impurity, you have a sexual rap sheet a mile long, Jesus says the same thing to all of you. He says, I want to disciple you in this. Come on in. 
come to me and I will give you rest. So if you are gay and you're here today, I want to once again say that I would love to hear your story. I'd love to meet with you for coffee and to hear how God is working in your heart. And if you're wondering if, if this is a place for you to work out your faith in fear and trembling, I would say yes. I think personally there's no better place for you to work out your faith than here with people who make much of Jesus and who love his people. And I'm sure everyone in this room still has questions. Uh, if, if we had more time, I actually wrote out a series of FAQ questions. We can't, we can't get to them today. But there's one question that I, that I really want to end with because it has implications for what we're gonna look at in two weeks. And the question goes a little bit like this. It's not fair to force singleness upon people. It's not fair to force singleness upon people. And we're gonna get to our message on singleness in two weeks. And here's a tidbit that we're gonna look at when we get there. When you live in a hyper-individualized culture that's obsessed with sex, and in a church that by and large is obsessed with marriage, singleness often feels like a death sentence. Singleness often feels like an extremely lonely place. But that's the amazing thing about what, the ch what Jesus wants the church to be. That we're not just people who come to a building for an hour and a half unless the pastor goes long, maybe an hour, 40 minutes. And then we go home. But that we are called to be the family of God to one another. And so people need love like people need oxygen. We need to be the family of God to each other. We need to be surrogate parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters and, and sons and daughters to one another. And in that way, we can be the family of God that leads to human flourishing. But that means that we have to have a collectivist uh, cultural view on this. We can't just think about what is my personal conviction, what's my personal position on this. Otherwise, we're just being false to the truth. And so God calls us to something far, far deeper than that. And so Gateway, my prayer is that we would be people who are marked by both conviction and compassion, by truth and by grace, by upholding the moral standards of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, but also the posture of his scandalous reputation of interacting with and associating freely with people who, who desperately need to hear the gospel of Jesus. People just like us, people just like you, people just like me.